0: Hey, welcome to the CMO Whisper Show. I'm your host, Steve Olensky. Part marketing practitioner, part ad agency veteran, part journalist. I was a writer for Forbes for 10 years. I've had so many insightful conversations over the years with business leaders, to athletes, to celebrities, to, of course, CMOs. The only difference now is instead of sharing those insights through written form, I'm doing it this way. My guest today is Jawad Bisbis. After starting his marketing career at Procter & Gamble, Jawad has held senior roles at 7-Eleven, Focus Brands, Coca-Cola, and Luxotica right up to his current role as Global VP of Marketing at Ball Corporation. He holds a master's degree from Kedge Business School in France and is fluent in Arabic and French. And when he's not working, he enjoys watching soccer, playing tennis, and mentoring college students and early youth in underserved communities. Jawad, it is so great to have you on my show. Welcome. Thanks, Steve, for having me. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So before we jump in, and everybody hears your brilliance, how we met, I have to tell this quick story. So we were both at the ANA Masters, which is now a few weeks ago at the time of this taping in Orlando. And Steve being Steve, and if you know me and have met me, I'm not the most graceful person in the world. And Jawad and I struck up a conversation, and I don't remember what exactly happened, but let's just say it ended up with Jawad or I or somebody spilling wine (laughs) over Jawad's shirt, and you were such a good sport about it. I felt so bad. I'm shocked he didn't walk away and didn't want to talk to me and get a restraining order against me, but I'm glad you did.
1: Listen, I barely remember it, so we're good. So... The very first question I ask everybody
0: who comes on my show, especially those with your background, what's the difference between marketing and advertising?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, you know, takes me back to college. But no, I mean, advertising is just like the, you know, if you look at the iceberg, it's like that tip of the iceberg. That's what people see. That's what consumers see. That's what your friends see. And probably that's where the confusion is, but marketing is the iceberg and And there is more into that than just the communication part. A lot of it starts with data and analytics, with strategy, business strategy, innovation, product, packaging, equipment across the value chain can be any type of innovation. And then when you do all that and you have a product, a brand, that's where communication or let's say advertising can play a role. There's no wrong answer.
0: And I love the visual for simple people like me. So I get it. So thank you. Okay. People are probably tired of hearing me phrase it this way, but the undeniable, irrefutable elephant in every marketer's room right now is AI. Uh, I've talked to marketing professors, to CMOs, to heads of insights. When it comes to AI, right? And the role of AI and data and just this evolution, right? Which I think we're going through, in fact, I know we're going through, if I say AI to you, even just, even just a from a word association game, what comes to mind when it comes to AI in in the context of marketing?
1: Well, I mean, uh, probably some of the sci-fi movies from the 90s, but for me, it's just the next iteration of marketing. So you talked about communication advertising when I started 25 years ago, it was mostly broadcast media. You know, very traditional uh, TV, radio, billboard, print, etc. And if you look at marketing today, it's mostly digital. Uh, a lot of the marketing is digital native. Uh, you social media influencers. It's it's much more technical probably than it was in the past. And and AI is just the next iteration. I mean, marketing is all about change. It's positive change. It's change that will help the functions, that will help the business, and we need to be leading that. A few years ago, it was big data, machine learning. So that's just the next iteration of it. Some of them are micro trends. And I think AI is one of those. Just like machine learning and big data, some of them were probably fads, like NFTs and blockchain and crypto. Even Mm -hmm. the metaverse, we don't know yet. It's still very experimental. So so I think AI is going to help a lot. Marketers get much more efficient in their work faster you know just iterate faster and iterate a lot and be able to pivot because you have all this power that you can use to mine all the data that is available and there is a ton of data available and try to make sense of it which a human cannot do or you probably need thousands of people to do it at that same speed so i think it's going to be super helpful in terms of ideation whether it's innovation or creative and it's gonna help us get better. Any any fear
0: when it comes to AI? Not just, you know, I've heard from so many about, I'm gonna lose my job, to I'm gonna get, or will marketers get too reliant on AI?
1: Well, I mean, everything that is new, obviously there is two reactions. One is excitement and the other one is fear. Those are two natural human reactions. So I understand the fear part, I'm more keen and lean in more on the excitement part. I think work that is mundane and that is repetitive, just like any type of work during the industrial revolution and past is gonna be automated. But creative work is hard to automate because you know coming with big core creative ideas, for example, that's not something that an AI can do because what they do is they mine past data to try to kind of make sense of the present. But new ideas will always come with people getting in a room, creative uh, right-brainers, left-brainers. That's where one plus one equals to. That's where collective genius works. And I don't think that's going to change. So big ideas, whether, again, for big innovation or big communication campaigns, will always come from that collision of multiple brains and getting that multiplier effect to build something bigger. But I think work that is mundane, that is redundant, that is probably sometimes tactical, can be done by, by AI. And so that the people can work on things that matter, like the big transformation that matter. Mm. So it's just gonna change the scope of work of some functions within marketing. I don't think it's gonna replace people. So I don't see, you know, that fear becoming the reality.
0: Yeah, I, d- I don't either. And, and I'm on record saying that. But by the same token, I know and I can appreciate some reluctance or or fear, apprehension, right? And it's human nature to the fear the unknown.
1: Yeah. Since the old ages, we fear the dark. That's why we invented the uh, fire. And uh, that's not going to change. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yep. Yep. Not much has changed since those days. You're right. That's a great point.
1: One of the questions
0: that I get asked and, and I get people asking for my help in, in explaining the role of marketing within an organization when it comes to growth, okay? And not just driving growth, but being able to show the ROI of marketing, right? And on one hand, it kind of you know we're, we're approaching the end of 2023, and we still have people who still don't understand marketing. And I guess we have to accept that fact. It is what it is. But I want to get your thoughts on the role of a CMO in driving growth within a company. And then how do you how do you validate that? Because then what that do, what that does is give, it gives the CMO that credibility within the C suite, right? And then hopefully. I'll go way ahead of myself. Hopefully, we'll begin to see that, that average tenure of CMOs grow because we all know CMOs have historically had the shortest tenure in the C-suite. So I didn't mean to hit you with a bunch there, but talk a little bit about the, the role of the CMO in driving growth within a given company
1: well the, the role of the cmo uh, along with the chief commercial officer or the commercial function is to drive top line growth just like the role of the cfo is to drive bottom line growth and as long as we do that then we have a place in the c suite when we start talking about you know fancy kpis or you know soft kpis then that's where it gets hard because you know some Functions within the C-suite, including the CEO, might not understand how is that going to help me drive top line growth, whether that's volume or revenue or sales in general. And uh, yeah, we saw it at the ANA when uh, McKinsey shared their study that the the relationship between the CEO and the CMO is not at its best. Because there is this miscommunication, misunderstanding about m- what marketing does. Is it a cost center or is it a revenue center? And as long as we are seen as a cost center, then it's hard to have a place in the suite. Uh, it's hard to have credibility. Then that's when you see that tenure you know, getting shorter. But if you go there with the revenue story, with the revenue growth story, then you get more credibility. So I think it's our role to do that. And you see today you have roles like chief growth officer which kind of include both marketing and sometimes commercial, innovation, strategy and insight because every enterprise is trying to justify why are we investing so much and what are we getting out of it. You see the, the increase of per- performance marketing. Everybody's talking about performance marketing versus like brand marketing or equity building or in a position to kind of equity building marketing. Because you can get much clearer KPIs with performance marketing. One example, if you do invest in SEO, SEM, in digital, and one of the key KPIs that is easy to track is ROAS, or Return on Advertising Spend. So if you're you're able to say, okay, I spend a dollar, I get four or five out of it, and that's a profitable revenue generator. So that's one KPI that is easy to explain to someone in the C-suite by saying our ROI is above five, and we know if it gets to five, six, seven, then it's a profitable business, and we should invest more, and this is the data. So we need more of those data when it comes to other type of media channels that are simple to understand for other functions Beyond, again, the equity metrics, like, you know, does, does the, the, the brand engagement or whatever that metrics is, could be brand awareness, et cetera. So we need metrics that people can say, hey, this is driving. Me. Velocity, for instance, is a great one. You go to retail, you look at the, the retail audit, and you see a retail velocity for your product by SKU, and you can say, okay, this promotion drove an increase of 2x or 3x in velocity so it's profitable. So there are metrics that can be uh, easily understood and that are clearly tied to sales and growth. And some are still kind of soft. And I think we need to get better at explaining the role of those metrics in driving ultimately sales and growth.
0: Yeah. And and listening to you, I, I can't help but think about you know one of the reasons I think the CMOs on the the have the shortest average tenure is because there's not enough of this upfront discussion when a given CMO starts at a company and understands the goals, right of that company, which may sound so obvious, right? But I really think it's overlooked. When company X wants to hire CMO, the mistake some companies make is they don't consider what kind of cmo they they need purpose driven you know performance driven brand awareness and you know things like that and then the cmo doesn't ask the questions what do you want what are you looking to get out of marketing and then that's when you start off with that disconnect then the foundation's not solid in the first place
1: yeah yeah i would say it's easier if the ceo ceo has been through you know a marketing so if you you talked about you talked about coke and png and a lot of the gms to the level of ceo especially at png come from a marketing background because marketing is at the core of the function of the enterprise so ceos tend to understand the role of marketing i mean mark Pritchard has been a cmo for 15 plus years there is a reason for that and that's an exception not the rule But I think it's because CEOs understand that, you know, it's not a magic wand. Like you're not going to invest in people and budget and voila, uh, growth is going to happen overnight. It takes time to build the brand, to build engagement with consumers, to build a strong proposition that will eventually lead to sales and growth. And I think a lot of CEOs that come from a probably finance background or commercial background tend to think, hey, you know, we gave you all these resources. Where's the growth? Show me the results. And they get impatient after year two and year three when it's probably not what they expected. So I think that's where the disconnect is. You got to be clear from day one. This is going to take time. If you're serious about it, especially if you are coming to revive a brand or launch a new brand, it's going to take a couple of two, three years probably to get it up to scale and make it successful. And uh, you need initially to have a very robust understanding and conversation about that. It's just like with CapEx. I mean, you invest in, 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 in CapEx, you don't get an ROI over a couple of years. It's four or five years to get a return on investment, to break even, to become profitable. And it's the same with marketing. It takes time and you need that patience and you need resilience. Uh, but I think you also need to show small wheels uh, along the way to build credibility that the trend is going to the right direction, over-communicate with all functions, not only the C-suite, but across the board to build that credibility and uh, bring people along. The earlier you involve everyone, not just the commercial function, but all stakeholders, the better people will understand the journey and they will feel part of it and they will feel also ownership and they will want to go with you and support you. But when you work in silo and you just say, hey, they don't understand, you know, then obviously people will uh, not support you when you need it. Yeah. and
0: As I jokingly say, there's a reason the word silo is a four-letter word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is It is the death knell for any company, right? That's for sure. I know one type of marketing that you're very passionate about is purpose-driven marketing. And I think there I think you can help clear up some confusion or misunderstanding of what that term means and then how that can play a role in, in driving growth and consumer engagement.
1: Yeah, and there were conversation around purpose at the ANA and, and presentation from some organization that put purpose at the core. Uh, again, not every product or brand can has a, can have a purpose. And I believe like the, the new CEO of Unilever came out and said, we cannot for, force purpose on brand. So some of some brand may have a, a real purpose. It needs to be authentic. You cannot just, you know, make it up. Some brand may not. And you, you got to start with that, that not every brand has a higher purpose or has, has a substance or has a role, positive role to play in the world. And then understand for those who may have a purpose, what is that role and how can you make it part of the core proposition? So, so when you look at, for instance, the ball and, and, and sustainability and recycling, that's part of the core of the proposition of the organization. They make billions of recyclable cans every year that are helping to replace plastic, that are better, more recyclable, more sustainable. So it's easier than to put purpose and growth together, because that's kind of the core proposition of the organization. And if you look at the aluminum cap, which is kind of the latest venture, that's the same idea was, okay, there's billions of plastic cup, think solo type of cap, disposable plastic cap that gets used in the US every year. Most of them end up in landfills or get incinerated. They don't get recycled. How can we solve for that? And that's where ball infinitely recyclable aluminum cups come to play a role to replace something that is less recyclable with something that is 10x more recyclable and that has a a stronger value proposition. So, So in that case, it's easier to sell with purpose because that's the proposition by itself. You're selling a sustainable product, a sustainable brand, and you lead with sustainability, and that's become part of your value proposition. And that's why people will be willing to pay a little bit more to get something that is better for the environment but again not everything is led by purpose i mean i spent 25 years in marketing i sold hair care and fabric care with png soft drinks with coke retail concept with uh, focus brand uh, lusatica 7-eleven a lot of those product and brand may not have had a big purpose which is fine but for the next probably 15 years i want to work for organizations, startups, companies that have purpose at its core. So when I retire, I can say, hey, I left some kind of legacy. I did something better for the community, for the environment, hopefully for the world at large. But again, not everything has purpose at its core. You cannot force it. It needs to be authentic. It needs to be natural. It needs to be part of the proposition of the brand of the product. And then people care people are willing to pay a little bit more or drive a little bit farther to get something that is better for the environment. And you just need to kind of educate them on why this is not greenwashing, because there's a lot of greenwashing in the industry. So you got to lead with an authentic voice. You got to work with brand ambassadors that are also credible, that can help amplify that voice and stay consistent and stay the course.
0: It's interesting because... I, I was looking at some some numbers recently where on one hand you have a lot of consumers who say they very much want brands to be, you know, environmentally friendly, sustainable, governance, you know, ESG. Yet the number of brands who promote, and that's a kind of an ugly word, but use that part of their their overall message is very low when it comes to advertising. And I think it's, you tell me, I get the impression that a lot of brands are leery of, of saying, look at us, look at us, uh, look how great you are, even though you're doing great things, for fear of how the consumer is going to react.
1: Well, I mean, just having a sustainable product only is not gonna cut it. Like the, the product needs to have a, either a functional benefit that is valuable for consumers, or or brand voice that makes consumers want to buy into the product. For me, the the perfect proposition for that is liquid debt. So, so I remember I was at Seven Eleven. I was doing some store visit. I see this brand because Seven Eleven was one of the first one to put it in their stores. And I thought it was an energy drink, you know, at best, maybe, you know, edgy beer brand. And, and then I look at it it's like water. It's like, Oh, that, that's, that is weird. Like, why would you put water in something that looked like an energy drink? And, and you look at their proposition. It's, it's very simple. It's dead to plastic, dead to thirst, but they make it edgy. They make it exciting. They make it fun. So they're not talking about, you know, Oh, plastic is bad, we are better. So, like that internal talk. They're they're putting it in a way that consumers get it, that consumers can say, Okay, I'm doing something better. I'm 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 using something better than plastic, for example. And and by the way, I like the brand because it has a voice, it connects with me. So so that's that's a great example on how you take sustainability embedded in the proposition, but also have a brand voice that engage with the consumer that make your brand stand out in a sea of sameness because you have a lot of brands out there. But it's also rooted in the deep consumer insight, which is that a lot of people, when they are especially in social environment, whether a concert or with friends, don't want to have an energy drink because it has artificial ingredient or maybe don't want to drink an alcoholic beer because, you know, they want to reduce that. And this helps them stay kind of connected, be cool in some way and be part of the, the group without the drawbacks or without the negatives. So it's still like it still looks cool. It still kind of puts me part of that gang of my group, but I don't have to pretend I like energy drink or I like beer to be part of that. And I remember there was a podcast with their founders and he said that idea came when he was on the agency side back in the 90s. He loves uh, metal and hard rock, and he used to go backstage in these concerts and Monster or Red Bull were the sponsors. But the bands, although they had a Red Bull or Monster can because they had to given the sponsorship, what was inside was just water so because a lot of those rock bands especially as they get older they don't want to drink something that is bad for for them and they and it was kind of mind-opening for him that you know this is what they drink they're just drinking water in a can and that's where the idea was born and it took some time to bring it to life and now it's a business in three years that exceeded hundred million dollar revenue a year value that more than 700 million dollar probably billion dollar brand soon uh, but that's a great way of uh, embed sustainability in the category, which is water, where there's a ton of plastic, but do it with a voice that is unique, that makes you stand out, and that makes people want to be part of your community.
0: Yeah. It, look, Liquid Death is going to be a case study for years and years and years for many reasons. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's just brilliant. I want to talk a little bit about something I heard, you mentioned the ANA. And I don't know if you were in this breakout session, and I wish I could remember who brought it up, but they they were talking about this findings where they surveyed marketers and they surveyed consumers. And it was basically to show the enormous gap between what marketers think consumers want and what consumers actually want. And it's always blown my mind when marketers sit down in a room and and start to strategize and think they know what their consumers want instead of just asking them. (laughs) Like, I, I just, I don't get it. And this gap was massive between what marketers think consumers
1: want and consumers want. Why is that still happening? Well, I mean, I don't have a probably a definite answer, but I do have a point of view. I mean, when I started at PNG, we used to do a lot of focus group, in-home visit, uh, shop along, uh, wh- where we meet real consumers. We're talking with real consumers, but with technology, you get access to so much data that is automated, that is done by third parties uh, that crunch all those data for you. And you think, you know, consumers based on those reports. And I, I like, you know, one of the, um, Values of Seven Eleven—they always say we're customer obsessed, and customer meaning their their shoppers. And and I was like, what does that mean? Like, uh, is that just a, one of the values that is sitting on the wall? But the reality is that they mean it because you have to go and visit stores at least once a month. It's not a big number, but the reality is that I don't know whether marketers do that as often on a consistent basis as probably it was when I started 20, 25 years ago, because you get access to all this data because it's always kind of priority number 10. Like it should be priority number one. Like you should spend more time, as much time with your outside, at least with shoppers, with customers, meaning retailers, with consumers, as you do in office, trying to crunch all those data or come up with the the next big idea or, or, or drive, you know, innovation or transformation. And it, yeah. And this one is for me, just simple. Just go and talk to customers, talk to consumers, visit stores and get your own point of view. Your gut might tell you something different than the data. And the reality is that the more experience you have, the gut becomes more important because that's, Mm. that's basically not just judgment. That's experience plus, you know, emotions together giving you. A point of view on what makes sense. I don't think, for example, going back to Liquid that they, that they test any of their ads. They're just going with their guts. It makes sense. It's on brand. Let's go for it. If it works, perfect. If it doesn't work, we can pull it out. And sometimes you got to run with that gut and stop just looking at all the data and make decisions based on the data. Uh, it's called data paralysis. Like You got to take some risk. You got to be bold. Yep. Always say in marketing, you have this 70 Twenty ten rule, seventy percent you do what you know works, twenty you experiment, and ten you kind of you go crazy with some stuff that may maybe out there may not work, but if it works, then it it may become the twenty or that may become the seventy. So mm. yeah, I agree. I I I mean, we're not the Gen Zers, you and me. We're probably not millennials, yeah. and that's the core of our consumers, depending on which category you're in. And you cannot just say, I know those people. I know those segments. You got to spend time with them. Make sure that part of your team is in that generation as well. And talk as many stakeholders, talk as many people. Be vulnerable because you don't have all the answers. Be able to kind of challenge your own beliefs and be flexible.
0: It's interesting as you're saying this too. I'm going to loop it back around. I could absolutely see a scenario where AI that uh, some marketers replace their gut and their instincts and what consumers are telling them, with, what the data is telling them through an AI program.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, the, the best analogy is social relationships today. And I see it with my kids. Like in my generation, you go out, you meet people, you go from my... Uh, for, I played soccer outside and you just meet with the the neighbors. In this generation, they're all on social media. They probably, unless they are at school, they hardly meet anyone because everything is kind of done through a screen and it's easy, but it's not going to change a social relationship. And and I think that's dangerous because you're building a generation of people that's going to face loneliness, that they're going to have a hard time socializing with real people, and going back to the conversation we had on on marketing and automation and AI, you wanna still have that real relationship with your customers and consumers. Meet as many as you can versus relying Mm -hmm. on the screens, relying on the data, relying on the automation to do it for you. It's just lazy. Mm -hmm.
0: That's the word. That is the word. Thank you for saying it. Let me pivot to your career for a second. As you look back, is there one person who's had a biggest
1: impact? Well, it's funny. Um, I would say, and, and um, I told this once before, I, I believe the person that has the biggest impact on me personally in my career was uh, a teacher in middle school, because without him, I would probably not be where I am today. Obviously, there's always people that are there at pivotal moment, but it's always start somewhere. And that was the start. So I was in middle school. I was not a great student. I was an average student. My mom was a teacher. They were friends. And he saw that was I was not doing great. And he, he talked to her and and, and he said, I can put him in this class where we're putting some of the our best people, our best student. And uh, I see he has potential, but he's not living to that potential. And by change, just making that simple change from you know, the class I was in to a different class and being challenged by super smart people and having to catch up because they've been together since I think I I think I joined like in in ninth grade, they've been together since sixth grade. So so that put me on a different trajectory because I had really to stretch myself to work harder, to work more than anyone else to catch up and then eventually to be as good as as some of those brilliant minds. And that what brought me, you know, to go to college outside of Morocco and, and have then a career with PNG. The second one was also kind of, I would say by luck. So I finished my business school in France, I got a job there. I was not going back home to Morocco. I went just for summer. There was this job fair. And I was like, Okay, let's just check out what's what's in there. And PNG was was there and I talked to them because obviously it's a great marketing company, right? And this is how you want to interview. It's like, oh, I already have a job in France. I'm not. I was not planning to go back. It's like, yeah, just give it a shot. You never know. And I, I, I interviewed with them, and I, and and again, brilliant people, super smart. And I was blown away by the culture, by the people. And I said, okay, that's it. I went back France, packed up my stuff, drove the car back, and started with PNG. So those two were pivotal moments that probably will not have brought me where I am today if I one of them was by luck, the other one was a teacher having the empathy and and a lot of you know teachers do a great job at that. As I said, my mom is a teacher, so I have a lot of respect for people that that's that's a work that has purpose. I mean talking about purpose, yep. teachers and yep. doctors. I mean we're just marketeers. Let's not fool ourselves. We're not gonna you know transform the world and 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 make it a better place. There are profession out there that do real work every day well that's amazing and
0: and thank you to those two folks for giving us the world you and all that you've done and will continue to do last segment if you will you can see behind me i know people listening can't see me but i'm a huge music fan very eclectic taste and music plays a big role in my life and my favorite song as anybody who's listened to my show knows, it's a song called Lean On Me by Bill Withers. Yep. It's from the 70s. The, the lyrics have always resonated with me. So my question, is there a song? Is there a lyric? Is there an artist that if you hear a song comes on, just
1: connects with you, means more to you, and why? Well, my favorite band of all time is still the Beatles. My favorite song is probably not one of the most well known, but it's one of the last ones, the long and winding road from the last album, Get Back. And it kind of tells, you know, the story of my life because I, I was, I grew up in Morocco. It's a small country in North Africa. And, uh, uh, I wouldn't have never thought in my widest dream, you know, making it to America and having a life and career and working with these uh, amazing organizations, but it takes a long and winding road. And I always go back to what Steve Jobs said at the commencement speech. You cannot connect the dot forwards, you can only connect them backwards. And when I connect all these dots, they brought me here today. And and hopefully with you know the gut you can and experience you can start connecting some of the dots forwards as well. But in the beginning, you cannot the, Connected that forward because you don't know what you don't know, so so that's one of my favorite songs because it's it's there's no straight line to success, it's a long and winding road, and it's there's a lot of up and downs. There are going to be success and failures, and as long again as you're willing to challenge yourself, as long as you're willing to stay the course, be resilient, be patient, as long as you're learning from those failures, eventually it will take you where you want to be to a road less uh, driven or whatever that is, to a path that you probably did not expect when you started. So, so yeah, The Beatles. Last thing, it has to do with audio. And I had
0: this idea as I was putting together my studio for my show and the albums and just different. And I go, you know, what's, this, what's the sound of marketing? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hmm, I'm gonna ask that. So if I ask you, what does marketing sound like?
1: I would go for alternative rock because I, I think, you know, it's still, it's very creative. Um, a lot of garage, underground bands that are always reinventing the music before it becomes mainstream. So that's, that's probably the sound of marketing. It's always changing. It's never the same. I always tell people, hey, I mean, you talked about mentorship. I tell, if you want to be in a comfort zone, don't go into marketing because marketing changes every day, every year. Be an accountant if you like to keep doing the same thing over and over, right? But if you like change, if you thrive in change, if, if you like doing different things all the time, then that's probably a good, good, good business industry to go in. And if you like, obviously, social relationship, because you work with so many functions and partners, both internal and external. Uh, so, so, yeah, probably alternative rock.
0: Okay. There's no wrong answer. I just love hearing everybody's answer to that question and what what conjures up, right, when you hear that phrase, the sound of marketing. So, very interesting. Listen, we are up against it. I cannot thank you enough. I'm so glad I spilled wine on you. I don't normally start a relationship out that way.
1: At least it's memorable, right? We'll always remember the first time we met. That's good.
0: We will always have the wine at the A event in Orlando, Florida to, get, to connect us. Yes. I am just so thrilled that you were able to come on. Uh, Michelle I so appreciate your time. And I know my listeners are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you again, my friend, for coming
1: on. Well, thanks C for having me. It was fun.
0: Well, that wraps up another episode of the CMO Whisperer Show. I hope you shared this episode with your friends. And if you have not already, please subscribe to be kept up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're so inclined, leave me a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.